Well, thank you, Ruth. And thank you all for coming out on a roasty weekend. We've got one door propped open. Maybe we'll just leave it at one for now. Uh, I saw Tim in the shorts, and I thought, you know, ordinarily I don't look to LeBron James as my fashion guru, but there's a suit short thing that I think could be working for me today. Um, so I, I need to avail myself of that somehow. Or, you know, like tear away uh, warm up. No, forget it. So Tim mentioned that we're, we're finishing up John chapter 5. Everybody said, woohoo! I'm excited to do that. Uh, and and the, the thing that I think is hard about that is where Tim stopped last week was kind of mid-dialogue with a bunch of people. So just in terms of interactivity, because it's going to be a little warm today, I'm going to need you to respond. So how many people have even the vaguest recollection of something Tim said last week? I'm not going to call on you, but go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. So <clears throat> there's too much. Let me sum up. Uh, Jesus has done the unforgivable thing of healing a man on the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. And because he's done that, he's made the religious leaders who go healing, we're ambivalent about that, but doing work on the Sabbath. So they find out who's done it, and they come to, you know, set things straight. And Jesus has this dialogue with them that doesn't go the way that they would like it to go, is kind of the, the summary. And he's, he's talked about authority and today we're going to look at how he's talking about testimony, witness. And uh, the, the funny thing about this whole deal is we're in John chapter 5, right? We already know that this group of people that he's speaking to hate him and want to kill him. There's 16 chapters left of John to go. So, like, John's kind of playing the cards all out on the table. They're on his, his tail. They're looking for an excuse, an opportunity, whatever. And so here's this, this person in this difficult situation, and he is not pulling any punches, as we tend to find. One of the striking things, I think, about this passage, as, as Ruth read it, is this idea that he's telling the people who, like, they, they majored in scripture. So they've got, you know, judicial degrees in scripture. Uh, and he's saying, you've, you've read the scripture, but you, you don't get it. And I thought, well, how do people not get it today? And unfortunately, I came up with an enormous list. And rather than bore you with that, I thought I'd go with something a little more benign, because I don't think a lot of people actually fall into this. But when I was a high schooler, somebody told me a story, and I think it's, it's uh, made up because it's just too perfect. But it, it's about somebody using the word of God as a magic eight ball, okay? So it's, it's a young man because usually it's a young man because <clears throat> we go through a stupid phase. Speaking for myself, at any rate. Uh, and things aren't going well on relationship fronts, and things aren't looking promising in the future. And just in desperation, he pulls Grandpa's Bible off the shelf, and he's like, well, I understand that there's supposed to be, you know, guidance here, but uh, most of it, I think, is scary. Uh, so I'm going to open it at random, but kind of skew toward the right-hand side so that I don't get any of that Old Testament scariness. And so he, he opens it, and he sticks his finger in there, and he's, he thinks, oh, you know, is, is this going to be the information that I need? And he, he's in Matthew 27, and the verse says in part, Judas went away and hanged himself. And I don't know about you, that's not the fortune cookie that I want. Thank you very much. The, the beauty, of course, of the Magic 8-Ball is if you don't like the answer, you shake it again and, and turn it over. So he does the same thing. Again, don't go left. 
a little further into the New Testament, puts his finger down, and what do we have? We have a verse from Luke, go and do likewise. Um, all right. Maybe get a new Magic 8-Ball. I, I don't, different version might help. I don't know. But, okay, third time's the charm, as long as we're being superstitious. So he, he flips further over, sticks his finger in, into John 13, what you are about to do, do quickly. <laughs> all right. And I won't ask for a show of hands whether anybody's ever looked at Scripture as though it were going to pop out a one-verse message just for you, um, because I can say that I have done that before, and it was not as amusing, but it was equally worthless. It's not a sign of, of maturity in anything if that's what we think Scripture is for. Okay, so what does that have to do with this passage? Well, this passage is primarily about Jesus saying, here are valid and invalid testimonies about me. And I think the oddest thing, perhaps, about this bit is how he starts. If I test about, uh, testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Does that strike you as an odd thing for Jesus to say? He knew no sin. If anybody's going to testify to him, I'd say he'd be a good one. But you've got to put yourself in the, the, the minds of the people he's talking to, and they know the law. And what does the law say? Well, the law was established in Israel by God to be as just as they could manage. And so in order to see justice done, the rule was one witness equals nothing. You got to have at least two. And it's, there are a number of places that talk about this, but because it's a good long word, Deuteronomy, uh, 1915 is a place. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is the practice, and it, it wasn't exclusive to Israel. It's a common ancient Near East type uh, practice because they don't have CSI labs. They don't have full-time detectives. They, they all they can go on is in these communities where people know each other. And wow, Billy the liar says this, but you know somebody else says something else. But when Billy and somebody else agree, and they're usually trustworthy, maybe there's something to. So, what Jesus is saying is, yeah, I could talk about myself, but I know that's not going to reach you. So where does he go from there? He goes a really strange place. He says, there is another who testifies in my favor. I'm using a slightly different translation. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. He doesn't say who it is. Who's the, the person he was already talking? He was just talking about himself, so that's not it. And the next verse says, John, you have sent, sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. So maybe it's John. I don't think so. But let's deal with John, because he... He goes there next. He says, you've sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. They said, okay, we've heard of you. What do you say about this guy? Okay, John tells him the truth. He says, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. Okay, so Jesus' testimony isn't valid, and John's testimony doesn't meet Jesus' standard. What's the point of bringing it up? John is uniquely qualified to talk to these people because in their context, he's a person with credibility. The people flocked to him. The people who wanted to kill John weren't able to because he was so popular. And he spoke the language of his era, and so the testimony that John gave had this credibility that was persuasive to people even though it wasn't high enough for it to clear Jesus' standard. Does that make sense? It's, he's the, the testimony who's uh, going to make the jury feel good about letting the person go or convicting them, not the definitive answer. And there's something about being that kind of a witness that's pretty important, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time 
to enjoy his light. It sounds kind of used, doesn't it? Yeah, he was a good show, but you know, he's so 80s. No? Uh, yeah, he was amusing, but you didn't like what he said. Nonetheless, he sure could draw a crowd, and he sure was interesting. I have testimony weightier than that of John. Okay, all right. It's not the testimony of Jesus, and it's not the testimony of John. It's something else. And before we go there, I, I want to take us out of the context of these religious leaders. Any religious leaders among us? No? Any doctorates in Bible? No? Uh, not me either. Okay. Then let's take ourselves into our context and go, well, people are kind of different from that. Well, yes and no. Uh, what are these people like? They want a set of rules, and they want everybody to follow those rules. And man, they're really interested in having Jesus follow their rules. It's almost like Twitter. Oh. So that's, there's this urge in humanity to have our set of laws, to understand them, and to especially point them at other people. We got that now. We've got another thing as well that's going on, and it wasn't as common in, in their age overtly. So if, if, you are, if you are not a chart person, I have to apologize for the next slide. It's just one slide. It's got pretty colors. Um, you'll get over it. This is from Pew Research. They do religious studies and surveys uh, globally. And this is one that came out at the end of last month. And it said, Western Europe has this strange thing going on where it was a very Christianized place and people still look at themselves, think of themselves, speak of themselves as Christian even after most of what Christian means is gone. So on the left, Western Europeans still identify as Christians. So 91% in their survey had been baptized. This is crazy. There were stories in the survey about people who didn't believe themselves, their parents didn't believe, but when they were little children, their parents took them to the national church or whatever and had them baptized. It's what you do. And so some of them said, yeah, and I was raised Christian, 81%. What does that mean? We don't really know. They're, they're anecdotal things because people self-identified as having been raised Christian or not, and nearly all of them did. Currently Christian, okay, it's tapering off, right? And you go, okay, these are people who identify as followers of, well, probably not, because that last one, all, all that says is I go to 12 services a year at, at a church, and it's 22%. So... 71% say I'm a Christian, and virtually none of them go to church. Now, is church the bellwether of being a Christian? No, but it's an element. Not because the building is there, but because the body of Christ is there. His people are there. And so, Western Europe's in this strange identity crisis where I don't, I don't really know what that means anymore, but I'm checking a box. And I'll tell you how much they don't know what it means. If you look on the right, the percentage of people who believe in God as described in the Bible. Now, the purple one makes sense. About 27% in the survey said, I believe that. Okay, well, a quarter, that's not terrible. The church attenders, so the people in the 22% category, less than two-thirds of them believe in God as presented in the Bible. If you're not going to bother to believe in God as presented by the, in the Bible, why in the world would you waste your time going to 12 services or more a year? Why in the world bother calling yourself a Christian? And that's actually what we find in the United States when they did a survey here last year was it was 80% of church attendees said, yes, I believe in 
in God as described in the Bible. But the number of people who no longer identified as Christians was smaller. So Europe is hanging on to this, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, culturally. Where in the U.S., it's like, I ain't nothing, people. Really religious, increasingly irreligious. And Jesus needs to be testified to in both circumstances. And I think there are ways in which the three ways that he describes his testimony in this passage actually relate to people inside and outside the church. Uh, and so there, there are these three kinds of testimony, and I am not sure yet I neglected to fix this slide. There's, there's an a icon missing. You see that blank spot? In your head, okay, plop an image in the foreground of a person. You know, you can put them at a podium giving testimony in a courtroom or a little word bubble above them, but, okay, because one of the three kinds of testimony is witness. So John is a witness to Christ, right? The second one is works. And he talks about that in, in the next bit. He had said he had testimony weightier than that of John. The very work that the Father has given me to finish, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. It's like, it's my job. I'm wearing the uniform. I'm doing the work. It's who I am. What was the work he was doing? It's warm in here. Somebody give me a suggestion. Out loud. You can do it. What was that? Healing a guy on the Sabbath. That's work. I mean, the people who knew the law said it was work, right? That's why it was not okay. Any other work he was doing? I would accept answers like telling the religious people that they didn't have the answers correctly. Always a valuable lesson. I would also accept he, he's living, he is God, living on earth, headed toward death. So John has already tipped his hand that these people want to kill him, but he's been tipping his hand that that's the whole plan the whole time. And so ultimately, Christ's work is to come and live and die and be raised and ascend and rule on high. That's Christ's work in the big picture. That's pretty cool. Okay, so... It's evidence. His work is evidence of what, what he's doing. A little more on that in a moment. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, a role from the Torah, so scripture. So remember, my, my magic eight ball person was avoiding studiously the whole Hebrew scriptures because those are kind of scary, right? Bad things happen. God seems a little angry. And Jesus came and he said, this points to me. He says, the Father who has sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, a claim that Jesus makes that he has uh, elsewhere, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I'm TAing a class. And I have, in a couple, of class, a couple of sections, people who are putting in an enormous amount of work and have an amazing capacity to miss the point. I, and, you know, if, if you miss by a little bit, then I, it's clear how I can help you. But when I go, that, that's not at all what this is about, it's hard even to know where to start. And that's what he's saying about the people who are supposed to know best. But what he's saying to all of us is looking at the scriptures and rightly dividing them tells us something about him from soup to nuts in scripture. It's not just Matthew through Revelation. It's the entire Hebrew scriptures as well. And it's just ripe with him. And so one of the things that, that we have to face is the reality that as afraid of this as we can be or as in love with the process of writing in our bullet journal about it as we are, in both, both places we can miss the point 
by focusing on something other than Jesus in Scripture. You following me there? So, man, I've seen some beautiful bullet journals, by the way, with fantastic indexes and, you know, cool little stencils in there, and there's not life in there. There's not life being gotten out of the Scriptures there. But I bet there are other ones that I haven't seen that are pretty and they're beautiful on the inside, and they're lit up by something that's, it's been God's plan the whole time. So what, what I want to do in a minute is, is to ask you a question, but I don't want to do that yet. Let me, let me think about how I can f- frame this, because we're going to interact now before it gets hotter and we all fall asleep, okay? So just prepare yourself. If you're an introvert, there, there's, there's conversation among yourselves coming. It's going to be okay. Uh, but these three things, if you are a believer and you can think of somebody who was lit up by Christ and you saw a transformation of character, you saw a transformation of ambition, you saw somebody who began to love people when you didn't see that before, Or maybe you saw somebody who encouraged you in a way that nobody else did. Think about that person as testimony. And then think about the extent to which you're reflecting that as well. Are there places that you do? Are you at John the Baptist going, it's him, it's Jesus, he's the one? Do people see that? Or do they see more the, you know, angry religious people going, you have the wrong political view on the subject? you voted the wrong way, you said the wrong thing, whatever those might be for you. If you're not a follower of Christ, I'd ask it the other way. Have you ever encountered somebody like that? Because I got to tell you, people like that, I've been following Christ for a long time, often poorly, but for a long time. And those people light up my life. So when you get a glimpse of something that isn't them, but the Holy Spirit working through them as he did through John, that's pretty exciting. Okay, so testimony is important. But works. I think one of the ways that we want to think about this, especially in a skeptical age, so why don't people believe in the God of the Bible? Because they don't really believe the Bible has any bearing on life. Because they've got a viewpoint that says the two sources of truth are what I think and feel and what science tells me. Okay? Other than that, there's not a whole lot of rational basis or philosophical basis for what most people think. So then you've got to ask yourself, what do I know about rational reasons, historical reasons, Reasons with a basis that somebody could grab onto for why Christ is who he says he is. And if you've been around for a while, you know Tim loves that stuff. That's part of his story is discovering that for himself and going, oh, I've got this upside down. For somebody like me who's always been churched, there's always a little hiccup there because I can't get my head into somebody else's frame of reference as well as somebody like Tim can who changed teams. Okay, and then the third thing is Scripture. And I just want to ask, if you are a follower of Christ, have you ever been in, it doesn't have to be a Bible study, but some kind of more than one person involved where you actually look through Scripture and look to apply it to your life and your life changed as a result? And if you're not following Christ, have you, ever, have you ever looked seriously at what Scripture says? I'm not saying looking at the skeptic's Bible. I'm saying look at the text. And having somebody, just like I would expect a Christian to look in community at what Scripture says, I would expect somebody who is curious to have somebody help them through Scripture, which can be confusing. So... Let's put, a, let's put a hold on what I'm saying for the moment 
and I'd like to ask you a question. How many people have been in a Bible study remotely like what I just described in terms of together, stuff from Scripture came in, got processed, and it produced fruit in my life? Could you raise a hand? Okay, a ton of people. All right, take the next step and stand up. Anybody who raised their hand for that? All right, what I'd like you to do is go find some people who aren't standing up. Make a group of five at the most. We're going to have a little conversation, then we'll come back. Okay? And uh, once you get, get in your groups, I'll, I'll ask you the questions. Okay? So it's going to be harder to find somebody who's not standing up than someone who's standing up, but just give it a shot. <laughs> Meandering for Jesus. That's good. All right, the questions are not going to be, there's going to be a, a, you know, question slide, but it doesn't have the question. The question is, for those three kinds of witnesses, wherever you are in your relationship with God, zero to, <laughs> okay, um, who's been influential? Who, who was a testifier that, that you had? Where have you encountered information or experience of the works of God that allows you to say, I'm confident about that? Or what was your experience of taking in the word and producing Christ-like righteousness at the other end? I mean, that sounds crazy. I read a book with some other people, and we didn't just jibber-jabber about it. My character is changing. Okay, so if you've got one of those things to talk about, somebody's testimony, uh, somebody's expression of God's works, or an experience of studying scripture and having it bear fruit, talk to your group about it. You've got some time to do that, okay? And don't monopolize. You don't have to answer all three. Pick one that's good and go.
right, one more minute. So if somebody's been talking this whole time, pat their hand and have somebody else talk, okay? All right, when I finish up, you are allowed to do this over lunch, by the way, so don't feel like you, you have to. Uh, um, okay, actually, what I'd like, hey, Tim, would you mind being uh, the, the mic holder? What I'd like you to do is I do not want anybody to share what you shared in your group. I only want you to share if you can summarize something somebody else said that, that resonated with you. Does that make sense? Made sense to Tim, so, you know. So we had three or four people in our group share something very similar, and I just noticed a theme, and that is that what inspired them was someone who discussed the gospel with them and read scripture with them and took time with them and made them feel um, heard and valued and like they were really interested in them. And that was what was inspiring. It was our group too. Oh, <laughs> so strange. What else? Yeah. Um. Somebody shared in my group that what really brought the word to life for them was um, hanging out in community in a small group, just picking parts of the Bible they didn't understand. And I resonated with that because it's happened to me multiple times where two or three of, of my brothers or sisters in Christ will be diving into a scripture and it will just like unravel all these connecting scriptures and it just blows my mind when you go in into scripture with a small group and that's what ma makes it come to life. All right, putting me on the spot now. Um, actually, with, like what Don was saying, a lot of our group members were saying that like in our formative years, there are a lot of people who were very, very passionate about Jesus. And then we got curious about why they were passionate about Jesus. And it was just a cycle of contagious Jesusness. Contagious Jesusness. I want a t-shirt that says yeah. that. Yeah. It's our new, it's our motto now. Yeah. Uh, one thing, uh, well, it wasn't just me, but I did share about, like, there were just, like, these moments in your life, like someone passed away or someone had their life changed, and it really went along with that example where God all of a sudden made the scriptures become more alive, and you couldn't, you couldn't take credit, you couldn't give credit to anyone but God doing it, which was pretty amazing and exciting. Yeah. Anybody else?
All right. Well, the so coming out of that, the the only thing I want to add is uh, it's important, especially remembering that Jesus is not talking about the New Testament. They don't have the New Testament. It's not going to be even begun for another couple of decades. Okay. Well, no, that's not entirely true, but. Most of it's not going to be completed for, for a, a little while. So the scriptures that Jesus is talking about that he can be found in, it's all Old Testament stuff. It's all Hebrew scriptures, and it's just rich and replete with him. And so one of the ways that that, that gets explained in the New Testament, and it's not in our passage, but I, I, want, to, I want to highlight it, is... Um, for example, Jesus says in, in Matthew, he said, God said this about husbands and wives. And you go, I know I've seen that before. And you go start in Genesis, and fortunately, it's pretty, pretty early on in Genesis. Or if you've got a Bible, you can look at the little letters and those reference in the margin related verses. Awesome tool. Uh, and you look at it and you go, it doesn't, God wasn't saying that in Genesis. God's not declaring, and, and therefore, I'm not, it, it, the writer is saying that. And it's important to keep in mind that Jesus isn't saying Moses had all the answers. Jesus is saying God spoke through Moses. God spoke through Malachi. God spoke through David. Peter does that in, in the, the book of Acts um, he, he talks about something that God says by the Holy Spirit through David in a psalm. And there's nothing in the psalm that, you know, is in, in quotes or red letters or anything. And you have to understand that the Hebrew scriptures are a letter to us too. It's not just food for Israel. And a good thing too because the people who were majoring in it didn't get it. But this bunch of hillbilly Galileans somehow had the faith. I wonder where it came from. To understand what they couldn't understand. And we get to follow in their footsteps. So this is the remaining big idea that I want to make sure that, that you walk away with. That no part of scripture needs to be scary enough that you have to avoid it. Even though I'd say in a lot of cases... There's a lot of scripture where you need a good guide. Um, but all of it is approachable by mere mortals who are reading it open to what the Holy Spirit's going to teach them through it. Okay? So one of my favorite uh, preachers is Tim Keller. And uh, he has what I think is an interesting uh, way of expressing that. He says, every part of the Bible is John the Baptist. It's him. It's him. Right? That's the role of John the Baptist. He's a witness. And uh, every part is saying, if you think you can obey me, you're crazy. I'm here to show you whatever it is. So the, the religious leaders were certain that if you just checked all the boxes and didn't commit any sins, that you were as good as it got. And so that was their focus, is being good or at least looking good. And I am telling you, Church of the Valley, that is not what we're about here. I don't want to be falsely impressed by you, and I don't want you being falsely impressed by me. Does that seem fair? Okay. They're trying to be on their own terms acceptable to God. And what God has said through the whole Old Testament is there's no way for you to do it. If you look at all the sins that are possible, 300 and a few, I think. Don't quote me on that. Uh, there are ones that I break. There are offerings for when you have broken the law but don't know that you've broken the law, right? So I sin, but I don't know how. And I'm telling you, there's not enough livestock in the world to keep doing that sacrificing for the rest of our lives, Okay, there's a stream of them going up to the temple, and that's the only way you can get clean until Jesus comes and says, nope, God testified to me, and I'm changing the deal because nobody could ever be righteous 
on their terms and satisfy God. That's freeing in a way, isn't it? I don't have to look good to you. I just have to love Jesus. And it's got this strange side effect that as I love Jesus, I want to do what he wants me to do. And as I do what he wants me to do, I love Jesus more. Not because I'm being good, but because more and more, I'm willing to do what he asks, even when it contradicts every impulse in me. My lovely wife, Karen, is here. Tomorrow is our 18th anniversary. And Karen and I will tell you that in, in our experience, uh, hiding what's wrong with you in a marriage is hard. That's one of the great things about marriage. Like, she knows nearly all of the ways in which I'm really messed up. It's fantastic. Right? <laughs> but there's a freedom that comes from the fact that both of us can say, I don't have to just look good. I don't have to pretend that we don't have a problem. We have a common place that we can go, and that's to the one who loved us and pursued us and saved us. All right. The other problem with this, uh, Jesus talks about, and he, he has this strange expression. What does he say? Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. In Tim's passage last week, Jesus said, judgment's been given to me. I'm in charge of that. And I got, I got really excited sitting in, in my seat last week because if anybody's going to judge me, I want it to be Jesus because I know what his character is like. I know that he knows how difficult it is for us to be human. So even though he's going to do rightly, he's inclined toward me. And that's, that's the only judge I want, right? I, I want some cheating. But he didn't have to cheat. He fulfilled all my obligations himself. But if you're stuck in Moses land, your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. We're going to be so righteous that God has to accept us. Uh-uh-uh, says Jesus. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Oh, even Moses is about Jesus. And so I've got this, I've got this picture. I just, just read uh, Pilgrim's Progress again recently. And uh, there's this silly, okay, Pilgrim's Progress, old book. Anybody read it? Okay, excellent. They're on a journey. Life as Christians. There's a guy named Christian, and there's a guy named Faithful. Anybody know what happens to Faithful ultimately in this book? Well, penultimately? What was that? No? Dies. Faithful unto death is who Faithful is. But he has a, a near-death experience before that because he's on the road and he runs into a guy who attacks him. Okay, so I'm going to just read you a little bit. Here and there, I might update the language on the fly, so uh, take that into consideration. So soon as the man overtook me, this man on the road, he was but a word and a blow, for down he knocked me and laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him why he did that. He said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. Okay, so Adam the first is Adam. What did he introduce into the world? Sin, yay! And, and faithful is rightly accused of inclining towards sin as you and 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 me are, okay? Most of us, however, don't run into Moses on the road beating the tar out of us. Okay, with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast and beat me down backwards so I lay at his foot as dead as before. When I came to myself again, I cried him mercy, but he said, I know not how to show mercy, and with that knocked me down again. He had doubtless made an end of me, but that one came by and bid him forbear, knock it off. And Christian says to Faithful, well, who was that that bid him do that? Faithful says, I didn't know him at first, but as he went by, I perceived the holes in his hands and in his side. Then I concluded that he was our Lord, so I went up the hill. And Christian says, that man that overtook you was Moses. He doesn't spare anybody, and he doesn't know how to show mercy to anyone who break his, break his law. 
Faithful says, oh, I know. Uh, he came to me when I dealt securely at home and told me he would burn my house over my head if I stayed there. And that's why people are afraid of the Old Testament, because there's judgment in there that we don't know how to deal with unless through those scriptures we're looking for Jesus at the same time. So we like the heroes, right? Joseph, you know, he, he, uh, he goes through all this miserable stuff, but he saves his people, he helps Egypt, he's an awesome dude, yay, be like Joseph, good luck, good luck being that perseverant. The thing about Joseph was, 400 years later, where are they? They're enslaved. It's, it's the end of the line for them, until God sends somebody else to spring it. But Jesus is a better Joseph because he doesn't just provide in the short term. He gives us life everlasting. He gives us communion with the Father. He connects us in a way that lasts forever. Uh, eternal life is, what is it, Tim? To know God and the Son whom he sent. That, like, this is amazing stuff. Okay. All right, that's enough of that. Let's, let's look at it in the positive way. Uh, George Whitfield, he says, have always in view the end for which scriptures were written, even to show us the way of salvation by Jesus Christ. And he, he goes through a number of sort of practical, okay, think this way as you're reading whatever kind of scripture. Um, so obviously looking for Jesus in it, he says, search the scriptures with a humble childlike disposition. And sometimes I search the scriptures with my pedantic scholar's hat on, and I don't get the same thing out of it. Uh, search the scriptures with a sincere intention to put into practice what you read. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. Put into practice what you read in scripture. Anyone? No? Pretty much any Sunday at COV? Okay. In order to search the scriptures still more effectually, make an application of everything you read to your own hearts. I advise you, before you read the scriptures, to pray that Christ, according to his promises, would send his spirit to guide you into all truth. And then read it constantly. So, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Um, there were three kinds of testimony that Jesus pointed to. What was the first one? Starts with a W. Witness, thank you. What was the second one? Works, excellent. And what was the third one? <laughs> word, uh, scripture, or if we're going all W's, word. So, Let's just put the, the question slide up again and just think about, not in terms of what has happened, but what needs to happen. Like, how do you need to examine your life in, and say, I'm, I haven't been a particularly Jesus-excited witness in this context. Christ, can you help me decompartmentalize my life so that, that that changes? Or the, the second one, how familiar are you with what Christ has done and can you express it in a way that somebody who isn't going to Church of the Valley could understand the significance of what it is? And then the third thing is, in what context are you developing your understanding of Scripture and by developing your understanding of Scripture, I mean something more than that. And I love one of the things Whitfield said. A desire to do the will of God is the only way to know it. You don't get all God's will if you're not willing to actually follow God's will. And so that's why we have people who join together to wrestle with this stuff and to say, hey, how's that going? Because all of this is critical to this happening in our lives, and it all feeds together to making us 
plight like John and pursuers of Christ who, I don't know, wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing all the places that we are where others aren't to be that jumping up and down witness? To be that person who understands where people are coming from and can say, no, this is actually reasonable to think. There's a reason for it. And somebody who can be a resource to guide others, even if we've only gone a little way through the scripture, we can help them come along behind us. That's, that's part of our vision of what ought to be going on here. Let me pray. We're going to have communion in a moment. And uh, th these are things... We can't do any of this except by the power of God. So communion is a reminder for us that we need his continual intervention. So God, I, I do ask that you would intervene on our behalves, that you would make us like your son, where we are naturally like ourselves. And I ask that you would turn us into people who are witnesses, people who appreciate your works, and people who are more and more feeding ourselves with others out of your word. In Christ's name, amen.